0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 54 of Nutanix Week. I'm your host, Andy Whiteside. I've got uh, two Nutanix folks with me. Uh Jira, do you guys call yourselves something special? Like, for example, this weekend I had on my Citrite shirt and some guy recognized me as a citrix employee, former Citrix employee. Do you guys have a, a new you guys have a, like an affectionate name for yourselves, don't you? Yeah, man. We
1: say Newton. Um <laughs> which makes you curious. What what do y'all say at Zintegra?
0: Zintegrites. Okay, well, there you go. Oh,
1: Z- Zintegrians? No.
0: Yeah, Zintegrians. Yeah, we you know we we pretty much steal from Citrix all their good marketing stuff, not the bad marketing stuff, the good marketing stuff. And they have had a lot of good stuff. Speaking I to say that up,
1: implies the existence of bad stuff.
0: It, look, if you're it's like uh I, I use this one all the time. It's like it's like auto racing, specifically NASCAR in my case, uh dirt track racing, what have you. Uh if you're not constantly tweaking, you're not really trying. Because, uh, you know, the track's going to change, the environment's going to change, what have you. And there's been probably half the tweaks I've ever done made it worse and half of them made it better. Uh, but the truth is your environment is changing around you. So you have to be doing something. Uh, if not, somebody else is going to catch you and pass you.
1: I've just realized that. that we don't do enough joint events together around dirt track. We need to fix that.
0: Oh, man, I would love it. That'd be fun. I, I, I love sliding sideways. It's been a long time, though, really. Well, okay. So that was the voice of Jyra Cox. Jyra is our subject matter expert on all things Nutanix. If I ever get in a world where I'm talking to someone, Nutanix, and I'm trying to validate myself, I talk about the podcast Jyra does with me and they say, oh, you must, you know, that you must be somebody then. I just associate with Jyra. You should, you should uh, talk to people that are less easily impressed. But... Oh man, they're pretty impressed. <laughs> Um, Also, you guys heard Ben Rogers. If you've listened to any of our other podcasts, the Citrix one, Ben used to be a sales engineer over there. Now he's over at Nutanix. Ben's a former customer. I used him as a reference uh, the other day with a joint account that we're both working on now. And, you know, uh, I think Ben, Ben saw the vision of delivered compute in a... Uh, low compute fashion, in other words, server hosted desktops. Uh at, at some point starts to bleed into VDI. Uh the world of hyperconverged and Nutanix shows up there. Uh, but that's Ben Rogers, uh, former Citrus Guy, former customer, now uh Nutanix new new what'd you call it? What what was your affectionate name for yourself? We're Newtons. Newtons. New, Newtons. Yeah. Have
2: I, I haven't quite reached the, the level of Newton yet. I'm called a newbie. newbie. <laughs> So I think until you complete your first year here, you're a newbie, and
0: then after that, you can assume the name of Newton. Hmm. With the acronym FNG, right? There you go. Yeah, I'm a friendly new guy. Friendly. New. I, would like,
2: I would like to think, and I, I don't know, Jyra might agree or disagree with this. I would like to think I've shortened the learning curve a little bit. It's just uh, what's been interesting coming from Citrix to Nutanix is Citrix had a wide portfolio that, man, as a sales engineer, you had to know a little bit of the whole portfolio from end to end. Nutanix is similar. You have the core product, which is the HCI product, but that product can spider out and do so many things. So learning the core has been one thing, but learning the 5,000 things the core can do, like we're going to talk about today has been the other. So Andy, I'm glad to be on another podcast with you. Excited to be hanging out with you guys today, ready to learn a bunch. And uh, Thank you for allowing me to continue my journey with you guys.
0: So, you know, we kind of, told Ben coming into this we wanted his feedback on what we do and have him chime in uh just so happens Harvey's not here today so probably play a larger role for now until he continues to evolve um but I am going to go to Ben real quick and ask a question Ben do you remember the first time we talked about hyperconverge and what you thought about my ideas that that's where you should be heading at that moment and and how things have changed
2: yeah I mean I remember the conversation you know I What's really wild about my journey here at Nutanix so far is that, you know, I was a three-tier guy and the economics of managing that infrastructure can be interesting according to how you purchase that three-tier. You know, it's, it's not always just one purchase. So, you have to work on when do the things depreciate out? When does it make sense? So, you know, I never crossed the bridge of having to go HCI. It's something that now I'm on this side. I would have definitely done, but I would have done it more to create the environment and the platform that would then allow me to spider out to the cloud services. So this whole concept of private cloud, public cloud, hybrid cloud, man, Nutanix really has embraced that. They're creating the platform that will allow you to service your on-prem private cloud workloads, but then also extend those out and not have to have employees learn a whole new set of tools, man. So that's been real interesting for me Looking on my past experience, I definitely could see where I would have embraced that along with continuing to run Citrix on top of it because of the goodness of the uh, desktop that I got there. And so, yeah, I just, man, I'm learning a whole bunch and uh, really a neat time to be in IT. And we're in one of those moments where this is a paradigm shift of bringing in cloud and how does that work for every organization because they're all going to be faced with it before too long.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting. We'll use that to segue into the topic today. We have, uh, tr- you know, you have the core of hyperconverged, which is really cloud fundamentals in your data center. And then you have things like additional features, like we're going to talk about today with files, and then the, the big uh, scary security world that needs to show up in everything, but files specifically. And then finally, the, the third thing, which Ben brought up, which is now the elasticity of multiple data centers and having that ubiquitous layer between all of them, which is going back to, which is all of it, right? Files and um, and the core operating system, the storage operating system, and all of that being prepared to go left, go right, go straight, go backwards if you need to. Um, and that's, you know, where Nutanix has really aligned itself, not with necessarily being the cloud, but being an enabler of whatever your cloud strategy is. Um, and and I I was at a Nutanix meeting last week in New York, and and I brought up to the the team presenting, right? The minute you help customers understand it's not the cloud, it's clouds, and it could really be clouds within one single uh, organization like Microsoft, but it could be your data center, their data center, uh, data centers, and the ability to be elastic and ubiquitous layer in between all that. The minute somebody shakes their head, yeah, I agree, it's clouds, not cloud, all of a sudden this layer that Nutanix brings to the equation becomes very applicable to all conversations.
1: Yeah, I usually I usually say it a little differently in my customer meetings. I'll ask like, "Who's your cloud provider?" And whatever they say, Azure, AWS. I'll say, "Actually, trick question. You are your company's cloud provider, right? Those are tools in your arsenal, right? Yeah. But but your company's cloud can or can or might include all of those things or none. Whatever the right option is, right yeah. choices for your company, right? But but yeah, having that optionality, that control, that agility to say things to start one place, move other places. Yeah, absolutely invaluable."
0: And my argument there is people that don't, the only people that want you to think it's the cloud is one of these hyperscaler players who are are trying to get you to go all in on their solution. And at that point, you might you might be able to think of it as one big cloud. Uh, yeah. But the truth is that doesn't work for probably anybody. And no, we
1: get we get far too much mileage out of like a single word there, right? Because when you think about everything from people trying to do like mainframe AI, AIx in the cloud to like serverless functions. We're talking about very, very different kinds of clouds in there, right? And then containers in the middle, VMs in the middle, and and we're we're barely even talking about the same technologies, but we wrapped them all in this giant word doing too much work called cloud,
0: right?
2: You know, what's been interesting, Andy, since I've been here, uh, one of the things that they really concentrate on is workload. Where are you, where where do you need your workload to reside? And so, you know, part of what we have to do when we go in is kind of get customers to wrap their heads around, you know, you got all these servers and all these services that you're, you know, spinning out to the company, but where, what is really your workload and, and where do you need to concentrate those efforts? And those are different. You know, I was in commercial at Citrix. Now I'm over here at Enterprise. One of the things that shocked me dealing in the Enterprise space is a lot of Enterprise has legacy and they can't really, man, get rid of that legacy for different reasons. But they're looking at ways to get that legacy spent out of private on-prem to public. And so it's been interesting to see how Nutanix can help some of the larger customers that have these legacy apps that they can't unfold their business from. How do they preserve that and make that move forward?
0: And, And for me, there's two ways to look at that. There's legacy apps that you're currently still using, and there's legacy apps that you can't retire For, you know, um, archival reasons, Um, and in both cases, you might approach them slightly different, but having a, again, that ubiquitous, and I'll probably say it way too many times in this podcast, having that layer that allows you to have high performance compute and storage oriented low performance compute is super valuable versus trying to buy that three tier thing that fits it all. All right. Um, so the blog that we're looking at uh, is Nutanix Files, um, episode 4.1, a security story. Uh, and we're going to have Jairo walk us through this and Ben chime in as to why it mattered to him as a as a CIO along the way. Uh, Jairo, who's the author of this one? I can't pronounce it. Or yeah. Good.
1: So Angelo Luciani um, runs our uh, community programs. So that includes like the... NTC program for uh, field evangelists, as well as the community site here uh, called .next, not to be confused with .next, the conference.
0: And he jumps into the blog talking about unstructured data. Uh, I guess and that really means uh database would be structured or, or legacy database would be structured. Now yep. unstructured data would be files and even, you know, tables and things that have, well, I guess not tables, but things that are just random data. How does that help me? Help me define unstructured data.
1: Yeah. So commonly used for uh, to describe things like file shares right on a NAS. So whether it's SMB, NFS, Windows file shares, Windows file servers, VMs, physical, um, you know, unstructured data. Basically, meaning that it's uh, like non-database, non-big data. There's not a schema that describes it. It's the structure is whatever users feel like on that day, right? Users can go create great, can great can uh, folder hierarchies, right? And that becomes the de facto organization, if you will, of the data.
0: So, in 1999, I was the Wintel Systems admin for a company located here in the Charlotte area. We had 54 gigs of user data files, you know, group shares and things like that. And my Unix administrator was after me all the time to get that under control. I wonder how much they have today.
1: I'm going to say yeah, 50, 54 gigs in 99. Yeah, it was like probably rivaling like the like hard drive in my PC.
0: Yeah. Yeah, was, that was crazy to think. We're probably no. using, you know,
1: 10, 20 times as many spindles and costing, you know, I don't know, 100 times as
0: much. Yeah. Well, and then for this conversation, uh, it's really about securing, not necessarily managing and, and reducing that size. Uh, we go into some things. We got three bullets here. Jira, you want to you wanna hit these bullets and then we'll come back to Ben and ask him as a, put on a CIO hat and tell us why that matters. Yeah, totally. Um, so a couple of data points
1: uh, shared for like table setting in the article around, you know, history and sort of growth of ransomware. Um, not going to surprise anybody listening to this, right? From 2015, which is like, not quite dawn of ransomware but early days of ransomware through last year 57x growth in ransomware uh growing to a global 20 billion dollar revenue stream which is terrifying um a, a really even more terrifying one right around even people that pay ransoms for ransomware only 65% recover their data um, and then uh, you know, perhaps like, let's, let's keep escalating the terror the terror here the worst one perhaps uh uh, average impact of a ransomware event can be 21 days of downtime, which is, I mean, that would be crippling to almost any company I can think of.
0: Do you think that was a company that, uh, said, you know, frick it, I'm not paying the ransom or is that a company that just took that long to figure it out? I mean, gee,
1: sometimes even the debate around which one are we going to be can take that long.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Ben, if you're a CIO again, um, what does this mean to you that these these concerns? I mean, first of all, I have my normal ransomware conversation. Ransomware to me has really just been a result primarily of all this bad stuff existed. Now they had, you know, cryptocurrency and ways to get paid. Ben, if you're the CIO today versus when you were uh, three, four years ago, how much more scared are you? Were you you know, were you scared then?
2: Oh, I was definitely scared then. I mean, you know, in healthcare, this was hitting healthcare, you know, before I made the transition over to being a sales engineer. Uh, these numbers are real. And, you know, this bottom statistic that Jaira introduced the 21 days of downtime, he's absolutely right. I mean, for where I was at in healthcare, that would have destroyed the business. They couldn't have been down 21 days. I mean, you're talking, uh, you know, neurosurgery stuff. So that is it's an emergency world. The other thing, you know, we've seen clients in the past and Andy, you and I have worked on, you know, a couple of projects together on this where ransomware not only wiped out their production environment, but it, went ahead and wiped out the backup environment where there was nothing left and the client had to start from zero from scratch. So these are all real world scenarios and, uh, you know, what keeps people up at night. And so I'm glad to see that our company is addressing some of this and, and, and bringing some real world solutions to this because these statistics are not made up. They're real and they're staggering and they're growing. I mean, this is not going away. Uh, the, the bad guys are getting smarter and the good guys are, they always seem to me to be in reactive mode and trying to flip the script and being proactive, which is what some of these tools are going to do is a great thing. So, I uh, mean I applaud, but yeah, it scared me then scares me now. Um, how you handle it, you know, man, make sure you got your backups going and some of these techniques that Jar's going to talk about built into our systems.
0: And it highlights here in the very next statement that this is all targeted at unstructured data, where we can those bad guys can get their get their hooks in and wait for the right moment to be called upon, executed.
2: Yeah. Now let's talk about. The, I, I do have a comment on the unstructured data. Unstructured data. You know, people think about shares and stuff like that, but there are some database systems that use image files. And if that application was written before the days of blob and some of, you know, some of this object storage that's out now, you could have a database engine that is pointing to flat files. We called it flat file back in the day, not unstructured data. Uh, But that was a worry for me because I was like, okay, you have these images that are being produced by the database engine, but they're not necessarily stored in the database engine or the storage that's doing the database engine. They're being stored out here on some kind of UNC path that the database is aware of and can call. But that, to me, I considered that unstructured data. And that was one of the big things that I was scared of is that you would have a ransomware attack in those storage silos that might not necessarily hit your database engines. But guess what? When a doctor goes and pulls up that image and it's sitting there going, we can't find whack whack UNC path da da da." That that's, you know, some of the things that scared me. So when we talk about unstructured data, just don't assume that it's shares. These could be legacy apps that have pointers in them that call out to unstructured data.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Ben. So, Jairo, walk us through this next little section, talking a little bit about what Nutanix has done up till now to help with unstructured data as part of its overarching operating system, uh, storage operating system, which, by the way, runs on multiple hypervisors, uh, Acropolis hypervisor being one, VMware being one. Uh, But what what has Nutanix done up to this point? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, everything we're going to talk about.
1: Um, comes over and above, right? Some of the basics that we've had for a long, long time right around antivirus integration for like pick your favorite antivirus uh, scanning engine that can then come over and scan our shares. We can like notify it when new files get written, notify it when people want to do a file access. Um, You can of course block... um, undesirable file extensions, right? You keep people from storing, you know, in that in that 54 gig mountain of data in 1999, right? You know, no MP3 collections, right? No uh, ripped CDs, um, as well as, of course, data snapshots, right? So, of course, fully agree with Ben, right? You definitely want to have your backups in order, um, test them regularly, monitor for change rates, uh, hopefully have them on some kind of an immutable platform. But we also ideally want to help you never need them either, right? If we can recover from a snapshot on the primary storage, that's gonna be faster than having to haul that back from a backup tier uh, as well. So so snapshots also are in, are in play. These are all just things that that files, I think either launched with or got very, very quickly after. Um, last year, we also launched Data Lens, right? Which does uh, cloud-based analytics of the data itself, um, looking for things like ransomware signatures, primarily at, for that launch um, file extension based, which is, we'll talk about, you know, is is definitely something it might be slightly um imperfect or or not uh all encompassing right we'll get into more the more advanced detection we've got now but yeah ran, um uh, ransomware detection powered by cloud by data lens in the cloud uh looking at file extensions to help identify things more quickly so that we can alert on them and you can react to them faster
0: now is that you jumping into the 4.1 um behavior of data lens or We sure that- can yeah yeah. Okay. Let's yeah. Do that.
1: So with this, with 4.1 uh, recent uh, uh, files update, this lets us then now also do even deeper analysis, so we can actually look at, into the data streams themselves and detect, hey, this file, even if the extension has not changed, actually has changed, and now um, it is exhibiting indicators that are probably indicate ransomware, right? So you can alert on that, even when the, when the file extension, file extension itself doesn't change. Um, as well as some behavior analysis, right? Around, hey, this is the wrong time of day for this many files to be getting touched. This is the wrong, um, uh, perhaps unusual user activity, right? For this account to be touching.
0: Sorry, guys, I'd lose you. You're fine, we're here. I moved my desk, I sat down, and right then you stopped speaking. I was like, oh, I wonder if I messed things up. (laughs) Um, I can keep going. So we're rolling in through... um,
1: Configurable remediation policies, right? So, like, once we detect this, how do we want to respond, right? And this is always uh, a little bit of a cultural decision for every customer, but you know, usually I'd recommend take a stronger stance, right? Go ahead and block a session, terminate sessions, uh, cut a user off from from perhaps SMB access or nullify those sessions, uh, block the IP address, mm-hmm. let them call the help desk, you know, apologize to them, say sorry, what you were doing looked like ransomware, versus take a softer stance and like. Alert someone, but maybe they're not looking at their email inbox for the next hour. Um, you know, don't wait for a human to respond to that threat. Be a little bit more proactive. You uh, know, if it does, you know, brew some feelings. Um, better to prevent something that might have the indicators of malware versus versus uh, have a softer stance.
0: Jairo, is this all Nutanix development in the product, or are these things that uh, you bought through other companies and added? I think this is all 100 organic. Yeah. Well, and I love that because that just shows that uh, even though, uh, well, I was going to, okay, I'll say it, you know, file storage and it is not the sexiest thing. However, security around file storage is, you know, one of the hottest topics out there. Um, it just shows that uh, you guys have, you have a platform, but you're investing in extending that platform that again, goes back to cloud use cases, uh, hybrid cloud use cases, private data centers, semi-private data centers you know, the same feature set's going to work no matter where you're landing. I think, yeah, 100%, right? It's part of the enhanced value of the platform, right?
1: Not trying it to be a, a single, you know, one trick pony around like just desktops or just, you know, minimally viable file shares. But like, what do we really need to run this for a rich enterprise, right? With security controls that respond to real world situations. Yeah, Ben, you were going to comment?
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that... I think that's so crucial about this article is one of the first things it says is that some of these exploits are getting past firewalls and some of the first layer defenses. So, you know, somebody gets an email and it gets through the email server. I mean, our users might not be aware that these things are happening. So having some of these additional remediation processes in the background, like are we seeing 10,000 files being encrypted at midnight on a Friday night when nobody's in the office? That's, that's something that, you know, uh, CIOs and IT directors are going to want to get a grip on because they might not have a lens on it. They might be enjoying their weekend or whatever. So, again, when you read the article in totality, you'll realize it's just a combination of multiple things that creates a secure environment. And this is just one cog in that wheel. Uh, I'm glad we're developing it because things do get past the firewalls. Things do get past, you know, email security. And so having this safety net at the storage level is awesome.
1: Totally. I mean, Andy, you mentioned how, um, in your mind, like the, the rise of ransomware tied in with like, um, the method of payment, right? So cryptocurrency kind of fosters ransomware. I think that's totally valid. I think it's one of like eight different things that all sort of enabled the rise of, of ransomware, right. Um, strong encryption, right. Strong encryption being able to be offloaded to like a consumer grade CPU, right. Cause it's all done on the user's workstation, right. But they have a great CPU that can do strong ciphers. Um, uh, encryption in general being a good thing, right? That we can do strong encryption like for end users uh, because all that ransomware is doing, right? is just automating things the user has permission to do. Uh, The user getting too much visibility to too much data, right? 20 years ago in 1999, most of that user's data, even if there was a 54 gig, you know, aggregate file share for users, there was way more data on people's desktops, right? But encrypting someone's desktop uh, was kind of a, less valuable target that desktop was more like more likely to just flat up die anyway right like that's you know workstations were just a thing they were always in the shop um back then so as a result data migrated to the data center right so all the data moved into user shares home shares application shares team shares um on the nas so then that put kind of more eggs in a more valuable basket right so ransomware said hey i can hit more um effectively um and then, of course, there's, yeah, speed of the modern uh, CPU, right? So, like, it's kind of a perfect storm. that Ransomware was almost like, uh, in some ways, it's almost a uh, perfect example for bad automation we talk about. You know, it, it's definitely automation start to finish, right, with lots of resilient error handling. Um, but, you know, or- orchestration automation at the desktop level nonetheless.
0: Yeah. Well, this next section talks about uh, write once, read many, which... Um, I I think comes from the S3 world. You can clarify that for me if you would. I I will point out the acronym of worm, which in security terms has historically to me mean like a bad thing. Um, Now we're talking about worm also being reused again as an acronym to mean a good thing. Jairo, what is write once, read many? And and am I correct that came out of the S3 concept or am I wrong? Uh, I I bet it probably predated that, right? Because I can think of a couple of,
1: like backup applications, even back in like the tape days, okay, that would have operated in like honestly, most tape backups were sort of a write once, read many construct. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it going back to like a security model, like what if we can take away from uh, a, a vast set of users uh, and apply that sort of minimal permissions needed to do their job? What if that includes deleting files? Right? Can you maybe you need to be able to create files but not delete files yeah. uh, or change files? which is what ransomware wants to do. So taking that away, if that's viable and op- and uh, a good option for, for your company, then it's a, a great uh, problem solver, right? To say, you know, maybe I can change a file for 10 minutes after I create it, but after that maybe it gets locked and, and now it can't be uh, deleted maybe by anybody or maybe only by like an administrator so that I can have more secure accounts that files could be deleted if they needed to. Um, kind of differentiating here between um, you know, enterprise mode versus like a true, like legal, legal compliance mode, right? We're, we're kind of familiar with the concept of putting like a, a mailbox in a legal hold fashion yep. so I can do the same thing with data, right? Is it is it
0: allowed to delete any data or is it just really hard to delete any data? And, you know, maybe this is where I'm naive here. So when it comes to the ransomware stuff, are we taking the data, letting it stay there and encrypting it? Or are we deleting it and making the accessibility to get back to it encrypted? What What, what do ransomware folks typically do? So
1: usually, I mean, most ransomware is going to um, take a given file, like a Word document, Andy's favorite Word document, uh, create another file that's going to be Andy's favorite Word document, maybe .docx, maybe X dot bad extension here, yep. uh, but either way, creating a separate encrypted file and then deleting the original, or maybe in some cases doing an in-place overwrite of that same file, so that's such that the data is overwritten and only the encrypted data remains.
2: Yeah.
1: In in either path, <clears throat> this kind of a f- functionality to do a write once, read many, the, the either the update or the delete gets blocked, right? The user, the user, right? Bad actor uh, ransomware uh, with the user's credentials can't either do the delete or can't do the overwrite to effectively destroy that data, right? And remove your copy of it so that only the their encrypted copy of it remains.
0: Yeah, okay. Been uh, thoughts on this technique? Were, were you guys using this where you came from, or uh, not necessarily this version? Obviously, Nutanix didn't have it at the time. You didn't have Nutanix, but were you accomplishing this any other way? Or uh, And I guess tape backup would be one of the ways we've done this through the years. Yeah,
2: I mean, man, backing up to disk is, is one way that we did it. We would back, you know, we went from tape to disk. And then I think one comment I'd like to make about this particular part of the article was this idea of immutable backup. Uh, the backup not being able to be changed. I've seen a lot of customers as they go, we're going to do on-prem backups for so many days or private cloud backups. Let me correct my, my verbiage here, private cloud backups for so many days, but then we want to tear those backups off to cloud. And a lot of people want those backups when they're tiered off the cloud to be immutable where they cannot be changed. You know, and that's the start of a DRBCP uh, scenario. So, it's been interesting to me to come to this side of the fence and hear people go, you know, when my backups go from private cloud to public cloud, we want them to be warm, you know, staged, immutable, no changes done to them. And we want to make sure that no changes can be done to them. That's where this has come up a lot for me and my conversations with my customers today.
0: Well, Ben, I like that uh, you, you went down further in the article and brought up immutable. Um, I mean, this is just a smarter way to do immutable storage, right? Am I looking at that correctly? my
2: opinion, yes. No, I'll let He he's the expert here. But yeah, if I was sitting in a another CIO role where I was responsible for the operations and more importantly, getting the operations back up with a fast RPO, fast RTO, this would be definitely something that I would be interested in. Or if I was going to make that break where now I'm going to take my healthcare data, which is HIPAA protected and I need to ensure that and put it in a public area, even though it's still my tenant and I should have access to it, I would want some kind of protection to ensure that that could not be changed once it broke that that barrier.
1: Yeah, in my mind, you yeah, immutability and worm really has a, a lot of overlap on the Venn diagram, right? Um, that ability to say this file set can't be touched, can't be changed until it ages out and hits some defined retention threshold, right? So, yeah, 100%, just great label for uh, same capability.
0: So this next section talks about multiple file server client networks. Uh, Jairo, you wanna help us understand what this means?
1: Totally, so so some customers, let's say you're a service service provider with a bunch of tenants that each have their own network that can't talk to one another. Um, In the before times, right, on like files 4.0 and prior, you would have to deploy a different files cluster, right? Because Nutanix files is a cluster of virtual machines. you deploy a different cluster into each of those different networks um, for each of those different tenants, right? Which is totally fine, very valid, um, easy to size for. Um, but one objection we would sometimes hear is like, "Well, that's a whole lot of uh, compute, a lot of CPU, a uh, larger number of virtual machines." Given right, if I have a small tenant, I still have to deploy like three of these virtual machines to run the file services for that tenant. So this is more of a shared compute, but still network isolation approach to say I can run one cluster of uh, file server VMs, one Nutanix files deployment, that I can then give different legs on the network right into multiple tenant environments, and then even further restrict it to say that if I'm coming from network A, I can only see shares A, Uh, network B can only see shares B, and it's still a shared uh, compute environment, right? It's running one set of FSVMs, file server VMs, uh, to run all of those different environments, but each tenant only sees their data.
0: Yeah. No, it makes tons of sense. You would want this uh, shared shared storage environment, um, but you would want to make sure people only saw what they had. They it really helps you. Access to. They could only get to, not right. saw, but get access to what they at the network layer, talk to what they have access to.
1: Which is the same as it was before, but now we're helping you run leaner as a service provider, right? Or get more bang for your buck out of the hardware you're going to run these VMs on, right? You leave more resources free to do other workloads.
0: What was it called in the, uh, uh, not Nutanix, uh, the Novell world where we hid shares, we could hide shares from people. And then Microsoft adopted that maybe 2012 timeframe. What what was that called? Do you remember?
1: Access-based enumeration. Access, yeah, access-based enumeration, there you go, man. Like it's, um, yeah, because I remember I've worked in places where that like wasn't turned on and you could see 500 file, 500 directories under the share, but you can only touch two of them, right? And when you tried to open any of the other ones, you got an error, right? And access-based enumeration, which we also support, uh, it's not really a security feature, it's more of the obscurity feature, right? Um it says, if I can only open two of them, only show me those two, not show me the 500.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and then at this point, I mean, real security, especially if you ask the network guys, and they're not wrong in this case, starts at the network level. If you can't get there, then you have secured it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the last paragraph talks about those intent on unleashing um, malicious activities will continue to find strategies. We just got to keep blocking them where we can and think proactively about where they're going next. Um, you know, if somebody wants to do harm, they will, uh, find ways, but, uh, we need to turn off their basic ways they can get to us.
1: Totally. Right. I mean, defense in depth applies to literally everything here, right. From, you know, if at all possible, you know, rewrite your URL, scan your incoming email, block your outbound DNS so that you can't even do lookups to get to, you know, bad places. Um, but then let's say the executable is running on one of your desktops, then, if they can't get there at like the layer three level, that's a good step. If they can get there, but they can't enumerate, that's another good step. If they uh, can see the file, but then don't have permissions to the directory, again, least possible permissions for a user role, then that's a good thing. But then if they can still see and touch the file, well then if it doesn't really need to be a file that allows updates, well then worm as well. So we've got a whole bunch of bunch of layers in that in that threat model.
0: Yeah, well, I think Ben hit on this a minute ago or in the beginning that, it's lots of different approaches all coming together to form a solution. And then I keep harping, you know, ubiquitously across multiple platforms, no matter where it is. In your cloud in your data center, your partner data center and your colo, you know, it's all clouds at that point.
2: It's a funny. Uh, Andy, I'll, I'll jump on a funny bandwagon here with you as we kind of get to the end of this. Uh, one of the things I get asked all the time coming to Nutanix is, oh, I thought HCI was dead, you know. Uh, or I thought you guys were a storage company. You know, a lot of customers think of us as a storage company or HCI. What I look at them is, man, HCI might be dead. Storage might be, be dead. But what's more important than anything is data management. And that's really where some of these tools come into play is, you know, yeah, we can run it on the platform, but the platform doesn't have to be physical. It can be virtual. It can be, you know, in third-party data centers we're looking at tools that will allow you to manage that data set and ensure that that data set is operational and restorable if needed in multiple fashions. I want to comment on one part of this article that we kind of glazed over is when I was in a managerial role and I was responsible for these things, I selected the NIST cybersecurity framework to model my framework around as far as, you know, being able to remediate problems and how do I I go and make sure the environment is healthy and stays healthy. And part of this article addresses that, man. And, And, you know, they, they set, they are looking at how NIST does things and trying to make sure that we can accomplish those things. And that's, you know, identify, protect, detect, respond and recover. And if, you know, organizations are looking to meet those goals and that's what they've set out to do from an IT level and a business level, our products really fall into that because we're following those models and we're making sure that those models are being met in our product set. And so, uh, man, I was pleased to see that when I read this today that we had included a little bit of a blurb of, we can help you get to a NIST framework platform. And and that's, that's, man, that says a lot, you know? And so I didn't want to glaze over that. Um, Another question I have, you know, we sell our base product does this technology come with our base product or does this require additional licensing? Educate me as, you know, what could have been a future customer now an employee trying to understand our licensing. Where does this fit in our product set and how do our customers take advantage of this?
0: So Ben, real quick before you go there though, the fact that, you know, you have a NIST standard that you go by, that's important. I hope most companies have something that they're that is their target, you know, to go by. Um, the fact that you brought up... Oh, crap, I lost my thought here. Um, the, the people think hyperconverge is dead. Hyperconverge is not dead. It is happening whether you know it or not, and it's obscured from you. That's that's the thing. I mean, it, it's become it's such the status quo behind the scenes that you think you're getting something as a service, but it's really there. But if you're building out your own or you're planning your own company's destiny, you better realize it's still there and not think that you don't need it because it it only enables those things you're going to do next. But you got to have it before you get there.
2: Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. I mean. I'm sure there's a lot of hyperconverged in some of these big data centers, some of these big cloud providers. It's just, you know, customers, uh, you know, they want to challenge you. And so when I, I come back to, you know, yeah, we're a hyperconverged company, we're a storage company, we can do all those things, but more importantly, we're looking at data management and how can we make sure your data is available to you? And yeah. if something happens to it, how quickly can you get back? The RPO and RTO is always interesting conversations to have with IT leadership.
0: Yeah. So Jyra, who gets it? Who owns it? Who owns files 4.1 that we've been talking about the last hour?
1: Yeah. If you're running a Nutanix cluster, um, virtually every cluster in, under the sun is licensed for its first TIB, uh, which is like a terabyte, but it's base two versus base 10. Um, but really close things. Uh, we were, you know, engineers going to engineer. Um, you can, you can definitely uh, try this out today on your cluster uh, when you click to deploy files in Prism, right, it's an automated procedure for you. It just asks you for like some IP addresses for what can it, it can assign there. It'll actually pull down the latest uh, files at that time. So you can just tell it deploy straight on to 4.1.
0: Yeah. And Jira, uh, does files follow your, your write frequency um, scenarios? In other words, if I've got a file that's in files within Nutanix, is it going to be written twice, written three times, the data associated with it. Is that, that how it works?
1: Yep. Yeah. Files falls under that, you know, RF2 or RF3 user configurable data management model for write, write all all uh, pieces of data twice or three times for resiliency. Uh, and then also to probably what you're also asking, Andy, about um, data tiering, right? So hottest data lives in the hottest storage in the cluster, right? So whether that's SSD versus HDD or NVMe versus SSD, or even now like Optane versus NVMe, whatever it is, hottest data can float to the hottest tier of storage.
0: And then Metro clusters, we're going to have it redundant somewhere else. And then we're also possibly going to back it up off site. And we, we, can, we can
1: replicate up. it. We can, um, we can, tear we can it back it reform. up. We can recover it, all of the above,
0: yeah.
2: I've, I've had some conversations with customers talking about tiering in these different cloud providers, because guess what? That exists there and you're paying for, you know, speed and availability. So some customers have come to us and said, how can you help us provide a better model for data, data management in our cloud providers?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want to kind of control that destiny too. You don't uh, just want to rely on whatever services they're offering because then they control the narrative at that point. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate it. Uh, it's been a Monday. Right? I, I snuck in a dental appointment, which by the time you add that to a Monday, I don't know what happened to the day, but uh, it's over and we'll got, uh, we will got four more days for the week and I'm sure you guys have plenty to do, so I'm going to let you go. Cool. Pleasure talking to y'all as always. Always fun. You Thank go. you, Andy. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jar.
1: Thank y'all.